What a Day is brought to you by Ulta Beauty. This AAPI Heritage Month, Ulta Beauty is celebrating the joy of belonging, belonging to a community composed of intricate connections, belonging to our past and our future, to the heritage and birthright that is beauty. Ulta Beauty shines a light on the AAPI community, passing the mic to brand founders and creators to tell their stories centered on heritage, joy, and beauty. They carry AAPI-owned and founded brands like Live Tinted, Peach and Lily, Glamnetic, Tree Hut, and more. Shop AAPI-owned and founded brands at Ulta Beauty Stores and Ulta.com. It's Wednesday, April 20th. I'm Travel Anderson. And I'm Priyanka Arabindi, and this is What a Day, where we celebrated 420 by writing the script for today's episode on a blacklight poster. Yeah, it's a felt poster, and we're reading it from here on the ground, where we're lying flat on our backs on beanbag chairs. It's super comfortable. Promise this will not affect our read of today's news. On today's show, President Biden clears away the student debt of more than 40,000 borrowers, plus the effort to expunge the records of people with past marijuana convictions. But first, the masks are off, and to some, that is great news. Masks will be optional this evening for all crew and passengers as well. Okay, so those are some cheers from one Delta flight yesterday. However, even though you can take your mask off, does that mean that you should? No, it does not. So, to remind people of the news, on Monday, a federal judge in Florida overturned the CDC's mask mandate for public transportation that covered planes, airports, buses, subways, and more. That mandate was originally set to expire in a couple weeks on May 3rd. A few hours after the ruling was announced, airlines like Delta and United made masks optional. So did transit authorities, including those in D.C. and California's Bay Area. They're optional for Amtrak riders, too, as well as Uber and Lyft passengers. Here's some commuters that the AP talked to who were happy to quote-unquote free their faces. It's about time. I just don't like wearing a mask, and I'm happy about it. I think it's the right thing to do. I think the CDC overreacted. This is adding to my pleasure of flying again. All right, I don't know if flying is, like, supposed to be a fun experience in general. (laughs) It's really just more about transportation. I don't think it's, like... A thrill. But anyways, despite the ruling, some cities kept mandatory mask rules in place. In New York City, for example, people riding subways, buses, and taxis must have them on, as do people in Chicago. The AP also heard from these people who say they're going to keep their masks on despite the mandate going away. I was wearing my mask today, and I will continue wearing it. It's in my own interest as well as the interest of other passengers to be masked. I'm a teacher. I still teach with this on. I'm still going to ride the train with it on. I'm with them. I refuse to be caught slipping. We also saw a number of health experts quoted in news outlets who said that the ruling had them concerned. So we're going to bring in Cricket's favorite health expert to weigh in and give you advice to help you make your own decision. Dr. Abdul El-Sayed is an epidemiologist and host of Cricket's pod, America Dissected. Welcome back to What a Day. Well, hello there, Trayanka. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) All right, Abdul. So COVID cases have been trending upwards in recent weeks, although reported hospitalizations and deaths are heading downward. So as a public health expert, what was your take on the ruling? I just feel like this is a little bit premature. If we weren't headed into what looks to be a potential wave, I'd feel a little bit better about this. And the other issue is not just that the masks are coming off right now. 
It's also that the ruling was written in such a damning way that it basically second guesses the CDC's right to even mandate masks in the future. Yeah. Um, mm. And that to me is really dangerous considering the fact that we don't know what the future looks like with this pandemic. And so the CDC ought to retain that capacity. And after all, the thing I want people to remember here is that it's not just what we do for ourselves, though masks do protect us from COVID, it's also what we do for everyone around us. The classic public policy adage is that my right to swing my fist ends where your face starts. So my right to breathe my COVID-infected air ends where your lungs starts. It's the same point here. And so it's not just about uh, what we do for ourselves. The CDC is not just mandating this for ourselves. It is mandating our capacity to maintain a healthy and safe environment in a context where, of course, on airplanes, air is being recycled over and over and over again. And so keeping that air COVID-free is critical. Yeah. Here is a clip of President Biden talking to reporters about this issue yesterday. President, should people continue to wear masks on planes? That's up to them. I, myself, have a flight tomorrow. I'm not feeling particularly inclined to take my mask off. Um, but if masks are optional, what is the risk if I or, you know, the people around me aren't wearing one? Well, this just puts an onus on wearing one of those well-fitting N95 masks. We know that... Yeah. Those masks will protect you for a long period of time from being exposed, even if someone in shared space is breathing COVID-infected air out of their lungs. And so that really is critical. So if you're still flying with one of those cloth masks and you'd like to wear a mask, make sure that you make it a well-fitting N95. Like we talked about, right, this isn't just about protecting oneself. It's also about protecting everyone else. And certainly when everyone is wearing a mask, it makes it that much less likely for COVID-infected air to circulate. But right. the fact of the matter is, is that this is where the ruling is. The Justice Department isn't even going to attempt to get a stay, meaning this is where we are going to be for the near future here. And so I personally, if I were getting on a flight tomorrow, I would bring my KF94, which is my trusted uh, go-to mask that I wear, and I would certainly make sure to wear it in the airplane. And frankly, the reality is, is I've been on enough flights now to know that you know, people see having food in front of them as a pretense to go mask-free anyway. Right. But the fact that there are going to be a number of people not wearing masks makes me much more likely to be very careful taking mine off. Yeah, like the COVID doesn't stop just because there are like peanuts or like cookies in front of you. Like that's just not how it works. You didn't know those Biscoff cookies were like just like masks? <laughs> They're not, just to clarify. So... Outside of mass transit situations, what's a good rule of thumb on the best places to keep the mask on hand and why? Think about it this way. One really helpful analogy is that imagine a circumstance where if someone was smoking, you would start to smell and taste that smoke. Mm -hmm. That is a helpful way to think about the spread of COVID. So if you were to be able to smell and taste someone else's smoke, you have the high likelihood of breathing their air uh, if they were to be COVID-19 infected. And so places where you're spending a long period of time that are not well ventilated with a lot of people are places where the highest risk of potential public transmissibility exists. And so certainly airplanes are that to me. You, you're flying in a small metal tube with hundreds of other people for a long period of time where they recycle the air, but also thinking about crowded spaces that are relatively tight uh, without high quality ventilation. And if I'm in a, a shopping mall or a tight convenience store where I'm going to be for you know, more than five minutes, those are the places where I'm, I'm indoor masking. Now, the truth of the matter is the benefits of wearing a mask really stay the same. 
But the costs are individual. People find wearing masks more or less frustrating or annoying. And so you really have to weigh that for yourself. But the places where the benefits are the highest are the places where you're at the highest probability of contracting. And those are the places where you're breathing a lot of air that a lot of other people are breathing too. That smoke analogy, I feel like, is really helpful to assess. In terms of cases and stats, what would you want to see, you know, before you're comfortable with all mandates going away? That implies that I'm looking at it from the present to forecast to the future. And as I've said, pandemics are really only declared over well into the future from where you sit. And so we're going to look back at this at some point, and there won't have been a number of surges or even increases in cases and say, yep, that was the point that the pandemic ended. Mm. But from where we sit right now, given the fact that cases are going up, and actually over the last two days, according to CDC data, hospitalizations are starting to tick up as well. Given that that's where we are right now, it's certainly not right now. And so I worry that social contagion is a real thing. People take cues from the people around them. And there has been this real push to argue that the pandemic is now over. And that's just not what the evidence is telling us. And even though it looks like we're not likely to have surging cases, there are a lot of ways that the data that we have right now may be an underestimate of what actually exists in our communities. And B, cases are still increasing. And given that cases are increasing, the probability of being infected, the potential of infecting someone who's potentially at risk of a serious outcome or uh, is immunodeficient still remains high. And there's always the risk of long COVID. And so You know, to me, I don't find wearing a mask all that onerous. And I have a daughter who's four years old who can't yet be vaccinated. And so, you know, we're wearing our masks in crowded indoor settings and we'll continue so long as cases remain on the upswing. All right. Well, that's Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, an epidemiologist and host of Cricket's Pod, America Dissected. If you aren't already subscribed to his show, do it now. The latest episode is all about how we treat and manage pain. Thanks, Abdul. Appreciate you all. And that is the latest for now. Let's get to some headlines. Headlines. Russia announced it entered a new phase in its invasion of Ukraine yesterday. Starting on Monday night, Russia upped its number of missile and artillery strikes along a nearly 300-mile front line with the goal of capturing the Luhansk and Donetsk regions in eastern Ukraine. Russia claims it struck more than 1,000 targets, although a BBC report says Ukrainian forces are, quote, well dug in. Meanwhile, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announced she'll boycott several meetings of the Group of 20 or G20 conference this week in D.C. That's because this gathering of finance ministers from around the world will include a representative from Russia. She plans to attend some of the sessions to show support for Ukraine's finance minister But a Treasury Department official told The Washington Post that Yellen would sit out many other meetings where her Russian counterpart is scheduled to attend to, quote, voice our strong condemnation of Putin's brutality. President Biden's Department of Education announced actions yesterday that will bring 3.6 million recipients of federal student loans at least three years closer to debt forgiveness. An additional 40,000 borrowers will receive forgiveness immediately. The changes will correct administrative errors previously made by the Education Department's Office of Federal Student Aid, which failed to direct borrowers towards what are called income-driven repayment plans. Had the borrowers known about these plans, they could have started earning credit towards debt relief sooner. Yesterday's move was emblematic of Biden's piecemeal approach towards cutting down on student loan debt. Also yesterday, the Biden administration announced it has restored requirements of an over 50-year-old law called the National Environmental Policy Act. 
These protections were removed by Trump, who, as we know, hates trees because he wants his skyscrapers <laughs> to be the only things that are tall. The law will now require major infrastructure projects like pipelines and highways to have their environmental impacts to be assessed before they are approved. I don't know how. That wasn't the standard forever, <laughs> but fine. I.e. by calculating the greenhouse gases those projects could emit over the course of their lifetimes. Elected Florida Republicans are doing exactly what taxpayers send them millions of dollars each year to do, fight with a talking mouse in red shorts. <laughs> Yesterday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis escalated his war with Disney by asking lawmakers to eliminate the special legal status that Disney World has had in the state for over half a century. Until now, Disney has been basically exempt from all state regulations and has been able to govern its own properties. Last month, the company's CEO, Bob Chapek, unknowingly put the exemption on the line when he announced Disney would stop making political donations in Florida after decades of giving generously to Republicans, including DeSantis. Chapek's objection was to the Don't Say Gay bill, which bans schools from teaching young kids about sexual orientation and gender identity. And yesterday's action by DeSantis was his way of saying that if Disney won't won't support him in his party's war on young people, he won't let them keep their exemption. If the DeSantis-backed bill passes, it will go into effect on June 1st. But you wouldn't know about the drama associated with that looming deadline if you stopped by Disney parks, where things have only gotten more joyous over the past few days, with a distinct uptick in physical embraces between visitors and giant six-foot-tall dogs, ducks, and rodents. Hugs between kids and mascots have resumed at parks, cruise lines, and resorts after a two-year ban because of the pandemic. It's a welcome change for all the little kids who could only scream, let it go, at Elsa from six feet away. <laughs> I'm a little nervous for all these, <laughs> these mascots, all these people who will suddenly be... Accosted. Uh, yeah, accosted <laughs> by these children. <laughs> The lawyer retained by the Kardashian family better get their ass up and work because the trial is now underway in Black China's $100 million lawsuit against the family. China used to be married to Rob Kardashian, and like all great romances, theirs was documented by a thousand producers and a camera crew on a 2016 reality show, Rob and China on E! The network was also home of Keeping Up With Kardashians, you know, before they moved to Hulu. China claims that the Kardashians, quote, abused their power to get the show canceled, costing her millions of dollars in potential earnings, and she also alleges that Rob was physically and emotionally abusive. For their part, the family has filed their own lawsuit, alleging that China physically attacked Rob. Opening arguments in the trial were yesterday, not present in the courtroom was China's mom, who caused controversy during an Instagram livestream following jury selection on Monday, in which she made hostile comments towards the women of the Kardashian family. She said in part that on day one of the trial, Kris Jenner looked like the puppet doll from the movie Saw, and that the family, quote, looked dead. Surely there are more updates to come as this very expensive trial works its way towards a verdict. We will continue to keep you posted. This is very much our beat. This is the reality show that I want to watch, actually. Yes, please. Just the trial, the back and forth. Give us a People versus OJ moment. I need it. I like, need it. Come on, Ryan Murphy. Where are you? Where are you? <laughs> this is critical. And those are the headlines. We'll be back after some ads to talk about 420 and clearing marijuana convictions off of people's records. 
Well, today is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She absolutely deserves the best. And that's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, your wife, your auntie, even your granny, okay? Anyone who deserves flowers in your life Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be holiday specific you get flowers you're getting flowers everyone's (laughs) getting flowers (laughs) go to books.com and use promo code wad for 25 percent off that is b-o-u-q-s.com promo code wad books promo code wad it's Wednesday Wad Squad, and we're going to wrap up today with a chat about marijuana convictions. Yes, today is 420, and usually it is a time for weed jokes, or if it's legal where you are, deals at dispensaries, you know, probably followed up by Girl Scouts at dispensaries. <laughs> I feel like this is their new marketing tactic. But we also wanted to get serious and talk about the efforts to decriminalize marijuana and the disproportionate rate at which black Americans are convicted of marijuana possession. According to a 2020 ACLU report, black people are nearly four times more likely to be arrested for possession than their white counterparts. And the increasing number of states legalizing weed has not curbed that trend at all. Yeah, President Biden promised during his campaign that he would decriminalize the use of marijuana at the federal level. But at this point in his presidency, that has not yet happened. Right. So that leaves us with different policies state by state. But as more states make the move to legalize or decriminalize marijuana use, there has been a huge push to expunge convictions for folks in prison because of these kinds of charges. That's at least 40,000 people, according to the best stat we have from a 2004 survey by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, though many nonprofits say that the actual number is much higher. Plus, there are tens of thousands more people out of prison who still have these convictions on their records. And Priyanka, you got the chance to speak with someone about all of this, right? Yes. So yesterday I spoke to Lynn Washington Jr. He is a longtime investigative reporter whose work focuses on the effort to decriminalize marijuana in America. He's also a journalism professor at Temple University. I started by asking him about the harmful effects that the disproportionate rate of marijuana convictions for black people has had on the black community in this country. Once you have an arrest record for drugs, including marijuana, you're denied access to certain things like access to student loans, rentals, jobs. You can rob a bank, be convicted and spend time in jail, but still come out and get access to federal funding to get an education. You have a marijuana conviction, even if it's just for a small amount of marijuana, (laughs) uh, you end up uh, being excluded. So it has a, a really outsized and deleterious impact. And let's also understand that many of these police civilian encounters that lead to arrests for marijuana begin with racial profiling. Mm-hmm. And there was a real effort to demonize and to increase arrests for marijuana directed against two groups primarily, anti-war people who were against the Vietnam War. And then it was also utilized in the Black community to break up the civil rights movement, the emerging Black power movement. Yeah. What are some of the promises that, you know, President Biden and other politicians have made about expunging these convictions? And, you know, where are we at in terms of progress on that? Uh, Fortunately, at some state levels, these efforts to legalize adult use of marijuana, they include expungement of records, uh, Mm -hmm. particularly for those who have just had a possession conviction. 
but then you get into the Byzantine nature of uh, some of these expungements. Um, So a person has to know that they're eligible for this and then go through some special efforts. Some legislation just includes a blanket expungement, but that is a first step in a restoration for the wrongs that the war on weed has caused. Definitely. There have been a number of progressive district attorneys as well who have been elected recently who have made, you know, big strides in actually expunging these convictions. For example, in San Francisco in 2019, their DA expunged over 9,000 marijuana convictions, some of which dated back to 1975. So in pushing for overall decriminalization of this drug, what offices should we be looking for for real change? Are we right to, you know, think all of it's happening at the presidential level or should we kind of be looking at lower level things to kind of be making these changes? There's been a lot of progress at the local and at the state level. I think here in Philadelphia, where I teach and have lived for a number of years, the decriminalization saved millions of dollars in court costs and police processing. So there has been uh, some progress. But in one sense, if you look at what's happening progressively at the local and state levels, you're really seeing people dealing with symptoms and not the cause. Mm -hmm. The cause is this substance remains illegal at the federal level. So that's where it needs to change. And it needs presidential leadership as well as congressional action. As someone who's been reporting on this issue for decades, as long as you have, long before, obviously, it was marijuana was legal anywhere in the U.S. Mm -hmm. What do you think about how far we've come in terms of this issue and also how far we still have to go? We've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And that long way to go really is a short step. Right. If you just take marijuana off the federal schedule one designation, and that is considered to be drugs that have no medical application and put it in Schedule 2, Schedule 3, or just take it off the DEA scheduling altogether, then problem in many large ways solved. We have known literally for decades that this substance is not the destroyer of youth, as the propaganda would lead people to believe. But over the years, so we say uh, starting from the, say, 1980s coming forward, The public sentiment has shifted from being very much opposed to, to being very much in favor of. And if people really understood the financial costs of this, not only the cost to those who are ensnared by these marijuana laws, but the monies that we expend on this, I mean, millions of dollars a year just for enforcement, monies that could be allocated to a plethora of other things. It's just absurd. And it's just so insulting. And the injuries from this continue on into the present time. That was my conversation with Lynn Washington Jr., investigative reporter and professor at Temple University. We will link to some of his work in our show notes. That's all for today. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, hug a six-foot-tall dog, duck, or rodent, and tell your friends to listen. And if you're into reading and not just laws decriminalizing weed like me, What A Day is also a nightly newsletter. Check it out and subscribe at crooked.com slash subscribe. I'm Priyanka Arabindi. I'm Travel Anderson. And, and happy 420. 420. Oh, yes. Puff, puff, pass, <laughs> if, if that's your thing. If that's your thing. (laughs) If it's not, like, what do you do? I don't know. If it's not, then don't. Or just pass. Or just pass. Just pass. If it's not your thing, just pass.
What a Day is a production of Crooked Media. It's recorded and mixed by Bill Lance. Jazzy Marine and Raven Yamamoto are our associate producers. Our head writer is John Milstein, and our executive producers are Leo Duran and me, Gideon Resnick. Our theme music is by Colin Gilliard and Kashaka. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com.